I'm going to read just the first three verses of that chapter. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I suppose the first question we always have to ask about these uh, sections of Isaiah is uh, to whom do these words refer? Is this the prophet or is it someone else? Should we look for another? And uh, for myself, I'm convinced that this is another of those servant songs, those uh, portions of Isaiah that uh, speak specifically of our Lord and can actually be put in his mouth. And we know that's true in this case because, as we'll see in a moment, the Lord Jesus quoted these words in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he said uh, that these words referred to him. So this is a messianic section. It has to do with our Lord Jesus. Now, what does he say of himself? First, the spirit of the Lord God is upon him. That is, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. What he did, he did not out of the force of his own personality and his own strength. It wasn't because of some charm or chutzpah that he had. It was uh, that he was dependent, totally dependent, upon the Spirit of God. That was, the, that was the basis of his authority and his ability to do what he did. That's how he did the works that he did. He, he put it so clearly, I do nothing of myself, he said. Our Lord, in his humanity, was a man totally dependent upon the Spirit of God. And secondly, we're told that he was endowed with uh, the Holy Spirit because he had been anointed by God. The, the verb anointed here is the verb from which the Hebrew word, verb from which we get our English word, Messiah, Mashak, is the verb. And the Hebrew word for Messiah is Mashiach. And uh, so this is a clear reference to the fact that our Lord was messiah He was anointed by the Father. And because he was given this, uh, this office and this opportunity, he was given the Spirit of God, that quiet uh, member of the God, uh, Godhead, to carry out his uh, work. Well, what was he to do? Well, he was to bring good news to the afflicted, to the poor, to the oppressed, to people that were down and out, those that were sunk, those that had it, those that uh, could not lift themselves up and, and go on. He was to bring good news to them. Now, that's a good thing to hear in a world where uh, there's so much bad news. Every time you turn on uh, the television, you, you get a spate of, of very, very bad news, corruption in places of leadership and a real crisis in, in leadership, as I see it and uh, conflict in the inner city, and 
And then we look at our own hearts and we see the issues that we're dealing with. Not only are we troubled by what's happening in the inner city, but in the inner person. The guilt, the fear, the regret, the mismanagement of our affairs and our relationships. And where's, where's some good news in this, uh, in this environment of, of bad news? A couple of years ago, I read a story about uh, the English General Wellington, uh, who was the uh, uh, general who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. And after that historic battle, they uh, sent signals back to England by heliographs, uh, mirrors, announcing that uh, Wellington had defeated Napoleon. But as they were flashing the signal across uh, across the English Channel, those that were up on the cliffs of Dover waiting for the signal saw the first part of the message, Wellington defeated, and then uh, fog rolled in over the, over the channel, and that's all they saw. And word began to spread across England that, that Wellington had uh, been defeated. And it wasn't until several days later that the message came through that Napoleon had indeed been uh, defeated. And uh, so it is with us. We hear all the, the bad news, and our vision is clouded, but here's some good news. There's someone who has come to do something about our oppressed, afflicted uh, state. Well, what, uh, what can he do? What has he done? Well, the servant says he has been sent to bind up the brokenhearted. The word bind up is the Hebrew word for bandage, literally, to bandage broken hearts. It's one thing to uh, fix broken legs and other broken parts of our of our body, but it's it's hard to to heal a broken heart. Uh, last Mother's Day, we had our, our grandkids over, and Randy and Jenny and their great grandmother, and we were all out in the front yard playing, and the girls were running around. We were playing tag, and Melissa, who's the littlest of our granddaughters, uh, who is five, uh, stu- almost five, stumbled and fell down, skinned her knees, and and. Uh, she wasn't, really wasn't hurt very bad, but she was humiliated here in front of the whole family to fall down. And Randy went over and, and just gathered her up, and she, she just she cried for a while. And then she was all right. He didn't even bother to put any bandages on her knees because it wasn't the physical pain that hurt. It was that her heart was broken, and she just needs someone to, to hug a broken heart. And there, there are a lot of, lot of you out there today, or a lot of us in that, in that condition today. Our hearts have been broken by neglect and and abuse and abandonment, and we just want someone to hug our hearts and, and heal us. Well, this is the one that can do the job. Secondly, uh, the servant says he came to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The word for liberty is a word that's used in the Psalms for the flight of a sparrow, Psalm 84, for example. Maybe where our expression, free as a bird, comes from. Uh, the servant does something that uh, Richard Bach could not do, and, and uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull uh, could not match. He sets us free, sets us free, sets us free from guilt, and from the memories of the past, and from controlling issues in our life, and from compelling uh, habits, and the things that control us, the sin that dominates our life. He, he sets us free. It's an old uh, Negro spiritual that came out of the slave era. It was popularized by Martin Luther King back in the 60s, but it was, it was actually a very old poem. Free at last, free at last. Thank God I'm 
free at last. And that's what we can say. He set us free from all of our past, all the awfulness and the ugliness of our life, the mismanaged affairs of our lives. And uh, he has proclaimed liberty to us. And then uh, the servant tells us that he has come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's a a remarkable uh, statement. Literally, it's a a year of grace. He's come to proclaim a year of grace. Now, what does he have in mind? Well, some of you know that there was a a provision in the Old Testament for a, a whole year when things were set right, when everything went back to, uh, to, to normal. It was called the year of Jubilee, uh, from the Hebrew word for a ram's horn, Yobel. It was the year in which, uh, in which freedom was proclaimed. The priests would blow on a ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah, on New Year's Day. And, and for that whole year, uh, people that were had been ground down by poverty and people who had lost their property through their own fault or the fault of the economy got to go back to their homes. They reclaimed their property. It was theirs then for the ensuing years. And, and if, they'd been, if they had to sell themselves into slavery, they were permitted to go back to their, to their families. It was a year of grace where everything that happened because of uh, poor management, poor behavior, uh, sin in their life, and even things over which they had no control. All of that was set right, so they, they, they returned to normalcy. They, they got their property back. And they were set free from their, from their slavery. See? It's a wonderful picture of what the Lord does uh, to us when he comes into our life. He begins to put things back the way they ought to be and undo the mistakes and, and the sins and the awful things that we've done to others. He begins to repair the damage and give us back what we've lost through our own, uh, through our own fault and the fault of others. And then uh, the servant tells us that not only will there be a favorable year of the Lord, a year of, day, uh, of grace, but a day of vengeance. Notice the contrast between the year-long offer of grace and the one day of, of judgment. He's going to... He's going to deal with those that, that have oppressed us, is the idea. He's going to set things right. As a friend of mine says, all in all, we do live in a very fair world because while we don't get justice now, and we shouldn't expect justice, one of these days, God's going to set everything, uh, set everything right. And then he comes to comfort all those who, who mourn. Those who have suffered loss, those who are experiencing sadness because of the loss of, of loved ones or the loss of status or the loss of youth or the loss of health or the loss of some, some relationship. He comforts those who mourn and he grants those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Asha, when people wanted to mourn, they sat in an ash heap and they put ashes on their head. They wore sackcloth. When I was in seminary, I used to drive an old junky Nash Rambler station wagon, and I always got razzed because uh, they said Roper was out sitting in his Nash heap. But uh, this is something else again. This is something even more depressing uh, when, when life just dumps on you and, and there's really nothing left uh, to live for. And, 
and we mourn over some great loss. And the therapists tell us that so much depression comes from loss, most of it from loss. Some comes from guilt, some comes from anger, but most of it just comes from having lost something that's very valuable, someone we love very much, or a relationship that was very meaningful to us. And, and symbolically, if not actually, we go sit in our ash heap and, and our Lord puts a, a garland of flowers around our neck, he puts a lay around our, around our neck. And uh, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, pours, pours perfume symbolically on our, on our heads, a picture of acceptance and gladness, the restoration of gladness. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of, of fainting. All of, these, uh, all of these symbols have to do with uh, comforting those that, are mourn, that mourn. Uh, as the Beatitude puts it, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I don't know how he does that. I really don't. But I found it true that when you come to the Lord with your sadness and your discouragement, he does comfort. He does uh, give us the oil of gladness. He restores our, our hearts and our joy. And then the result is this wonderful picture of, of a live oak tree. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. I noticed that Judy has put, uh, put on the front of your bulletin an oak tree, live oak tree with the verse surrounding it. And that's the bottom line, is this picture of an oak tree. Uh, righteousness, as I, as I pointed out before, is accord, accordance with a standard. Here's the standard. If, if something is righteous, it's like the standard. And uh, in the ancient world, they referred to live oak trees as oaks of righteousness because they always conformed to the standard of treeness. That is, they always had leaves. They always looked like a tree. And so they were called an oak of righteousness. So what, uh, what Isaiah is saying is that, that, that as, as the Lord begins to work in your heart and stabilize you, that you'll be like one of these thousand-year-old oak trees rooted in the ground with tap roots that go down, uh, down into the, to the ground and, and uh, there's no shaking it. It's not going to topple over. It's, 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 it endures. It's a wonderful picture of maturity. Stability, tranquility, and strength. And all of this is what the Lord has done. It's a planning of the Lord, you see, so that he may be glorified. Now, that's the passage. And uh, in the original context, this had to do with the exiles that were out. They were off in, the, uh, in, in, in Babylon. And they were oppressed and enslaved. And, and, and Messiah was coming to set them free and and to some extent, there, there was a fulfillment of, of this promise in, in what the Jews called the Aliyah. They're going up to Jerusalem. And the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of worship and the establishment of the commonwealth again. But uh, it was never fully fulfilled, not in the sense in which our Lord fulfills it. Now I want you to turn to Luke 4, where this passage is quoted. And I want us to spend the rest of our time in, in this passage. Uh, the section actually begins with chapter 3 in the baptism of our, of our Lord, verse 22. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Now, our Lord had done nothing up to this point that we're aware of except to be an obedient son. Uh, he walked with God 
in obscurity during these time during this, the, these thirty years that precede his baptism, but uh, he was pleasing to the Father, and the Spirit descended upon him because he had been Messiah, he'd been anointed as the Lord's Messiah. Then there was about a, a year's period which the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, overlooked. John considers this period in the first four chapters of John. It's a quiet period, really only one miracle that we know about, the miracle at Cana at Galilee, and one other perhaps at, at Capernaum. But um, this was a quiet period in our Lord's life. And then in, in verse uh, 14 of chapter 4, we're told that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, here again is this, uh, the dynamic of our Lord's life, this inexplicable power to get things done, this quiet, unostentatious uh, authority, the compelling authority that he possessed. And uh, the news began to spread. The news about him spread through all the surrounding district because of this filling of the Spirit and the impact of his, life, of his life upon others. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now, synagogues were like little churches. They, in fact, the word uh, synagogue just means to gather together. And these were little, little groups. Uh, usually, uh, if there were 10 adult males in a community, this was called a minion, and they were able to establish a synagogue, a place of gathering. And these synagogues dotted the landscape. They were places of worship, uh, Instead of going to the temple, they could worship in the, in the synagogue. And we know pretty much about the culture of that time and the order of service and the way they carried out their, their worship. Usually the service would start with, uh, with a time of prayer. Someone would pray uh, for the congregation, for the people of God. And then someone would read from one of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Law, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then someone else would read from the prophets, and then someone would read from the writings, which was the third section of their Bible. Well, someone read the Torah, the law, and then when it came time to read the prophets, our Lord stood up. He volunteered to, to read. And, of course, in, in, in the synagogues in those days, any adult male could contribute to the service. You didn't have to be ordained. You didn't have to be a clergy. They didn't have that sort of thing. They did have rabbis who were teachers, but they weren't the only ones that served in the worship. So our Lord stood up and volunteered to read. And the scroll was handed to him, and it just happened to be the scroll of Isaiah. They had a lectionary, a, a listing of, of passages to be read. And Isaiah, they didn't have the numeration that we have, but it, what corresponds to Isaiah 61 just happened to be the text that our Lord read. And he rolled out the scroll, and he read the passage that we just read in Isaiah 61. Now, this was the first time he preached, as far as we know. No preaching in this year that intervened. Maybe some ministry to small groups, but he hadn't been preaching in the synagogue. This was his hometown. That's a tough place to begin. That's actually where I began. I, my first sermon was delivered in Schofield Memorial Church, the church that I grew up in. I was paralyzed with fear. And uh, you know what happened afterwards? People came by and they said, that was very nice. They didn't know what else to say. <laughs> <clears throat> Terrible experience. And I, I, but our Lord uh, walked into his hometown and he, and he stood up and he takes a scroll out and he reads Isaiah 61. And then do you realize what he did? He rolled the scroll back up 
and he put it in the little receptacle that, that, that contains it, the scroll, and he sat down, which was the place of, that, that's the way teachers taught in those days. They sat to teach. They stood to read the scriptures out of respect. They sat down to teach. And he said, this passage is fulfilled today. Talk about a bombshell. Suppose I had read Isaiah 61 to my home church in Schofield Memorial Church and said, I am the one that this passage refers to. What do you think would have happened? They would have all thought I'd gone around the bend at the very best. Now let's read beginning with chapter uh, 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the passage that we read earlier. Some variation because he was probably reading uh, from a Greek version of the Old Testament. So there's a little bit of variation, but it's basically the same passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he set the book aside. He did not read the next verse, which, as you remember, was to, to bring vengeance, the day of vengeance. There's actually a comma or there would be a comma here in the text if they had those sorts of markings in the, in the Greek text. But, but he stopped it in the middle of the line and he put the book away because it isn't time for God's vengeance. This is still the year of, of grace when the good news is being proclaimed. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, my version says all were speaking well of him. Not all versions say that. Yours probably says they were testifying about him because that's actually what the text says. They were talking about his buzz started to go through the audience. He said, what is this? And, and they were wondering. They, they were astonished at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Compelling, authoritative words. They were hitting with such an impact as he expounded on this on this passage. And they were saying, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? Wait a minute here. We know this fellow. Well, I've known him since he was this high. This is Joseph's son. What is he saying? And, and, and they, they began to talk among themselves. And the Lord read the, the climate. He understood what was going on. And, and he said, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourselves. Yourself, that is, save your reputation. See? Do something to establish your that what you're saying is uh, is reliable, is, you know, that you're credible. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, "Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his in his hometown. People are always better able to see greatness in those from outside rather than from those that they know they know well." But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. 
And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naam and the Syrian. And the synagogue was filled with rage. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city has been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. He was immortal till his work was done. They couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't touch him, but they would have killed him if they could. If you go to Israel today, they'll show you what they call the Mount of Precipitation. That's the name of it, the Mount of Precipitation. It's a sheer cliff. They tried to throw him off that uh, cliff, but he passed uh, through them on. Untouched. Now, why were they so angry? Well, two reasons. First, the audacity of this claim that this young upstart who had grown up in this city and everybody knew who he was should claim to be the Messiah. Clearly claim to be the Messiah. No question about that. And secondly, the presumptuousness of this man to say that they were blind and poor and oppressed. You see what he was saying? You see, the Jews thought that they were the people that God had called to speak the good news to the poor. And that's true, they were. But what they didn't realize is that they themselves were poor and impoverished and needy and desperate. And what the Lord did is what these dear kids did up here this morning. He just took their masks off and they saw themselves for what they really were, you see. Now, this is what the gospel does. The good news has this uh, has this uh, has this effect. It reveals people's need. Now, there, there are several ways we could look at this passage. One is to see it as what the Lord does for us, and clearly, all of us can be encouraged, and helped, and ministered to as we see that this this is the way the Lord meets our needs. But uh, I would like to look at this passage as an encouragement to give away the good news to others. The whole world is full of people that are poverty-stricken. Let me tell you something interesting. I had no idea that uh, these high school people were going to do this mine. We had planned this thing months before, but we had not uh, tried to put the passages together. It just happened that Isaiah 61 fell on the same Sunday that they did this mine. What they did is exactly what Isaiah 61 says our Lord can do, you see. He can heal the brokenhearted. He gives sight to those that are, that are blind. He exposes the hypocrisy of, of those who inside know of their sin. Uh, he, he, he takes the, the beautiful people and, and he helps them to see that that's all a front, that the beauty fades and it, and it cannot ultimately uh, satisfy. He does all of those things uh, for us. Now, the truth is, the world is full of poverty-stricken people. Uh, you know the old uh, poem, Hark, hark, the dogs do bark, the beggars are coming to town, some in rags and some in tags and some in velvet gown. Some come in rags, some come in periellus gowns, some drive uh, Nash heaps, uh, others drive Beamers and Mercedes. They come from the slums and they come from the nines. They're, they're working people, uh, uh, you know, people out of work, homeless people, and they're people that, that come from the 15th floor of West One. 
everyone out there is desperate and poor and needy. It's just that they don't know it, see? And that face is so good. We don't see it. What we see is the bravado and the clownishness and, and the, the attractiveness, the clothing, the face. And, and, and we don't see beyond the, the facade. My uh, uh, second son is an English teacher over in, uh, in Arlington High School in Arlington, Washington. And he sent me a poem, uh, which I had never seen before. I've, I've since found out it's quite well known. Let me read it to you. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked, but he still fluttered pulses, uh, pulses when he said, Good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king. And admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Now, I I want you to understand that's, that's where people are. We, we don't see that side of people, but that's where they are. Thoreau talked about people living lives of quiet desperation. He was right. He himself lived a life of quiet desperation, as you know. And he's right about everyone else. We don't talk about these things. But our hearts are breaking. And we have the good news. Do you understand that? With all the bad news out there, we have the good news. And because we're in Christ, we're in the Messiah, we also are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's all we need to get the job done. Doesn't count, doesn't, our personalities don't count. Our humor, our ability to articulate the God, none of that matters. Because there's no power in any of that. What matters is that we possess the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. How do you know? Well, uh, let me use a kind of a homely illustration. Someone gave me a tape the other day, and it said there's some beautiful music on this tape, and uh, there's no title on it. I, uh, you know, it just looked like a piece of tape to me. And, uh, but he said there's beautiful music on the tape. You know how I found out? On the way home, I plugged it in my tape deck in my Jeep, and sure enough, beautiful music came out. You want to know how you have the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm, I'm telling you, you do if you belong to Christ on the authority of God's word you do, but the only way to find out is to put him to use. Just just try him out and see what happens. Just take that small step of obedience and begin to find out where people are out there. The second thing I would say is that we really do need to speak to people's poverty. Some of you may have seen the the, uh, special on Channel 2 last week and secrets of the Bible, and uh, it was interesting. I kind of winced all the way through it because I, there, there are a lot of things that trouble me about it. But, but the thing that struck me the most is that nobody's going to be convinced by that. Nobody. No one ever came to Christ through an apologetic presentation. They, they wouldn't come to Christ if we found the ark. 
It wouldn't do a bit of good. It's a waste of time to go looking for that thing because no one would ever come to Christ. In fact, as Jesus put it, even if someone came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. You know what gets to people? It's speaking to their heart. It's discovering that that God has an answer to broken hearts and, and broken dreams and, and ravaged schemes. And he has an answer to broken relationships and troubled marriages and, and the disappointment and the depression and the discouragement of life because life doesn't ever go our way. It, we've got to speak to those to those issues. And how do we know that that people have those needs, well, you just have to ask them. That's how you find out. You just have to ask them. Uh, several years ago, there was a story in Reader's Digest about a fellow that was returning a car from a garage. Some of you may have seen it. The mechanic had been working on the car, repaired it. He gave the driver the, the name and address of the person to whom he was to deliver the car, but the he wasn't thinking very clear, and he forgot, the, he forgot the actual number of the address. He remembered the street, but he couldn't remember the house number. So he drove up and down the street a little bit, trying to think, How am I, I don't want to have to call back. That's a lot of trouble. How am I going to find out where that person lives that belongs to this car? And then he noticed on the visor a garage door opener. Okay, and you know what he did? He drove up and down the street, and he just punched the button until a garage door came up, and he pulled in. See, and that's how you know, see? You just see, are, are, you, are people open out there? Tell me, how, how you do No, how are you really doing? Come on, how are you really doing? See? Where are your hurts? You just ask people. You just ask them. See? We, we say all the time to people, how are you? And, and they say, fine, and we just move on to something else. But uh, have you ever had somebody say terrible? When, when, that happened to me one time. I was at a party. The fellow said, how are you doing? I said, oh, awful. He said, great. And he went right on talking about Because he wasn't listening, see? He wasn't listening with his heart. You have to listen to people's needs. People, then your neighbor comes over from next door, and, and, and it, you're putting in flowers, and they just come over and chat with you. you, know, you just, just ask God to open their hearts and begin to talk to them about the good news. You don't have to know everything. Just just tell them what the Lord's doing for you. There's a difference, you see, between evangelism and witness. Big difference. Not everyone has the gift of evangelism, but everybody's called a witness. And you can just talk about how God has healed your broken heart. You notice, notice what Josh did up here when, when, when the, one of the, I forgot now who it was, one of the characters came over and started to reach out to him. He just pointed to Jesus and and that person was healed when they came to Jesus. That's what we got to do. I'll close with a story I told years ago, but I, uh, it illustrates, I think, what, what I'm trying to say. I, I had a friend that lived down in Laguna Beach, California, just uncanny ability to ferret out people that, that were open to the gospel. I was sitting in his living room one day, and I said, Mike, how do you know when people are are uh, interested in, in spiritual things. He said, it's easy. I ask them. I thought, okay. <laughs> and I'm, I made a silent vow that day that the next person I saw, I'd ask if they, if they were interested in spiritual things. Well, we went back. Uh, we were down in Southern California. We drove back up to the San Francisco area. And next morning I got up and I started to... Uh, 
started in my office, and there was a fellow standing on the street corner, and, and uh, he, he had long hair. This, this was back in the 60s, and, and the Lord said, there, there's a fellow. And I said, no, nah, I couldn't be the one. <laughs> I stopped and picked him up, and we, we drove along uh, on the way toward the freeway, and, and uh, found out he was a philosophy major at San Jose State University, and, we chatted a little bit, and I thought, this couldn't possibly be the, the fella. And we got out on the freeway, and, and, and we just kept talking, and I kept trying to say something, and nothing would come out that seemed appropriate. And finally, we came to the interchange where he had to get off. He said, I've got to get out here, so we pulled over to the side. And, and I stopped him as he was getting out, and I said, this is going to sound really strange to you, but I want to ask you a question. Are you interested in spiritual things? Now, this is... This is exactly what happened. He got back in the car. He sat down next to me. He looked at me. He said, friend, I've been looking for God all my life. Can you tell me how to know God? There are people out there that need the Lord. And we have the good news. And we need to share it. Let's pray. Father, your love is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Uh, there's more that we could say about you than, than we could possibly articulate. Why then are we so silent in the face of human need all around us? Lord, give us the tongue of the learned that we would know how to speak a word in season to those that are weary. Give us such a love for you that it overflows in love for others and a desire to tell them of the relationship that has given substance and meaning to our broken lives. We ask in Jesus' name.